On a dark desert night. A small voice calls. Sister, will you tell us a tale? Jinn, Magians, Sultans, Buried Treasure. We're going to explore what they say about their cultures then and why they captivate us now. Light your lamp and pour some tea while we retell you a thing. Welcome back to the podcast. It's a very happy day and a very sad day, all wrapped into one. It's a happy day because we're talking about The Thousand One Nights, which has been amazing, and I've really enjoyed it. One of the best parts of my year, frankly. And it's a sad day because it's the last time ever on this podcast we'll never again talk (laughs) about The Thousand and One Nights. Just kidding. We probably will, but it is the end of our official series. Yeah, this is kind of the the wrap-up for The Thousand and One Nights project. I've loved this so much. Like, truly, this has been incredible. As of recording this episode right now, the first episode of this project has been downloaded and listened to 1,687 times, which I'm so glad that so many people were interested in this project and wanted to learn more about this set of tales, whether they are in the middle of like catching up with all of them or whether people have been like skipping around and picking the ones that they like thought sounded the most interesting. Like, I'm just glad that people were interested in listening to the Thousand One Night stories. So I didn't realize how much I would learn from spending a whole year diving into one topic. But this one, I like I I did know that there was going to be a lot of scholarship available on it a lot of stories to pull from and create episodes, but there was so much that I gained like personally from reading the thousand and one nights, these like the stories themselves along with like the scholarship. So I can already tell that this episode is going to be beefy. (laughs) Maybe not as long as our end of the year special last year. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And the, that That one was the snow holds the record. Yeah. Yeah. Longest episode. You looked it up. How long was that episode? I don't even remember. I blocked it out of my mind. I think it's like five minutes shy of being three hours long. It's like so it's two still, hours and 55 minutes. What's it's not crazy, as long as the Lord of the Rings movie. It's fine. It's one of our most listened to episodes, though. So apparently people didn't mind. Yeah. The, which is like, that's great. I'm glad people didn't mind. It was really long. And then like on top of that is we also did an hour long episode for our Patreon supporters that was just based on the stories that are the stories of the flowers inside of the garden. Yeah. Of the, like the one witch um, in the Snow Queen. So yeah, that that episode, that was pretty beefy. Um, so I don't know if this that, episode is going to be that long. The bonus episode of the flowers is probably one of my favorite bonus episodes that we've done. I found that to be like one of the most interesting things that we talked about, like talking about the origins and the mythological connections to different flowers and how they got their name, like Narcissus oh, yeah. and Hyacinths and stuff like that. I was like, every time I see these flowers now, I'm like, hey, you want to know a fun fact about this? <laughs> Because the thing about Hans Christian Andersen was like he knew his folklore and he knew how to turn it into 
his own like literary fairy tales. And so it's incredible to look at the stories of the stories that he is referencing. But anyway, while talking about bonus episodes and our Patreon, just to plug like that episode alone, I think is worth at least one month subscription to (laughs) the Patreon. But we have on the Patreon, if you were to sign up today, you would have access to 10 plus bonus episodes and outtakes for like 50 plus of our regular episodes. Which the outtakes are sometimes like bonus episode in length because we yeah. go on these long tangents and we include those things at the end. So there's like bloopers and there's outtakes. So like, there's a lot of content that you could have access to. If you are like, I can't, you know, I've caught up to everything that you've done so far. I'm looking for more. What can I find? I was like, Patreon, we got you covered. You could spend all the holiday break listening to fairy tales content, which I can't think of a better way to spend your break. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you already have to listen to it anyway, Jeff. So <laughs> I guess it's good that you can't think of a better thing to do. True. But anyway, so this episode, I don't think that it's going to end up being that long. I guess we'll see. But I don't want to like front load this episode too much before we like get into the story itself. I kind of want to just like hop right into the story that we have for today from The Thousand One Nights. We're going to be telling the story of Maroof the Cobbler. So this is usually the last tale inside of the cycle of the nights, including in the transcript that these stories are translated from. And before we start, I just simply want to recall to everyone's mind where we started from. In this tale, we're going to be going back to talking about the types of women that Shahrazad is including in her tales. So be on the lookout for the two main women in this tale and how they act, the things that they do. And then also, and I don't want to give away too much right at the beginning, but this story might have some elements in it that will be familiar to people and might recall a fairy tale that we have not talked about. Yet. So that was like a big mysterious, like, ooh. But now Jeff what is could going it be? to what could it be? There was definitely a reason why this is our like finale story. So Jeff is going to tell the story of Maroof the Cobbler. The first thing you need to know about Maroof the Cobbler is he had just a terrible, terrible wife. According to Shahrazad telling this story. <laughs> And she she does seem pretty bad. She does seem pretty bad. So bad, in fact, that <laughs> Scheherazade says that she fitted the poem's lines. And the poem is just a classic. It's just the greatest, like, diss track of a poem. And it says this. How many a night have I passed with my wife, spending it in the greatest misery? When I first lay with her, I wish I had brought poison and poisoned her. <laughs> I like to think that it sounds even better in Arabic. I agree. It probably is. It's beautiful in English translation. I'm sure it's <laughs> absolutely gorgeous in Arabic. <laughs> and we even start off the story with an event that shows kind of just how terrible that she is. Because one day she demanded that her husband, again, he was a cobbler by profession. That's someone who makes shoes. 
this is two episodes in a row that we've talked about cobblers. You're right, it is. <laughs> we we like briefly mentioned the elf and the cobbler, the elves and the cobbler in our last yeah. episode. Cobbling is making a comeback. Anyway, so as he's going off to make a living at his trade, uh, even though nobody seems to have their shoes mended anymore, which I was like, oh my gosh, like the cobbling industry has been going downhill since 1000 AD. <laughs> What's, you can uh, st- I'm like there are still like cobblers you can still find cobblers yeah usually attached to like tailor shops but usually yeah, what they but do like, is like they resole like yeah. really fancy dress shoes yeah I had some dress shoes that I like so much that I was tempted to have them resold but it's like you can't make a living as a cobbler like you're a, you cobble in addition to your other uh, activities like tailoring Anyway, so his wife demanded that he bring her back a treat when he come home from work, like a sweet treat. This like it's described as like kind of like shredded wheat that's drenched in wild honey. Yeah, I actually found it's a uh, well, I, I hope I'm pronouncing it cunifa cunifa pastry. Mm-hmm. I found a restaurant near me that makes it and I kind of want to like go. And yeah. order it and try it out. But I you should have done the appropriate time. homework before the episode and had it like delivered via Grubhub. I cannot tell you. Oh, I looked to see if I could get it delivered via <laughs> Grubhub, actually. Um, and the amounts of time when I'm like doing research and I'm like, ooh, I'm hungry. I should get like that particular culture's like food because they're describing it. The worst was the voodoo episode. That one I straight up was just ordering Cajun food to come to my house. Yeah. And I feel like the thousand and one nights is like the king of that. Yes. I want to eat my way through the thousand one nights. There's so many of these stories that just feature delicious sounding food so heavily, including this one. But unfortunately for the cobbler and his wife, He didn't make any money that day because nobody gets their shoes mended anymore. But the baker took pity on this poor cobbling soul and was like, hey, you know what? I'll front you the money. Here's this delicious treat. Scheherazade describes this in the frame story as being like a treat that was so good that it would be worthy of a king's table. But Maru's wife, Fatima, which apparently is like the name to have back in the day. Cause it's like every story, everyone is named Fatima. Yeah. I think it was just like, I think it still is a very common name. I don't mind it. When she sees this treat that Maruf had brought her, she goes into a rage and she starts just like beating the crap out of, she beats him up so hard that she knocks out one of his teeth. And apparently she was so upset because it wasn't what she asked for because this wasn't made with, you know, fresh wild honey like she had asked for. It was made with like sugar, you know, instead of the wild honey, like cane sugar. This That's lady, my thing. she's got like champagne taste and yeah. uh, a tap water budget. <laughs> yeah, but it's like she beats the poor guy up, knocks his tooth out, grabs him by the beard and drags him out into the streets and starts like beating him and just yelling at him and, and like denouncing him basically to all of the neighbors around like about what a horrible husband he is and how he's a failure. And uh, he finally calms her back down. But she's like, if you don't bring me back a hunt, like one of these things that's covered in honey tomorrow... I'm going to beat you up again. And so he's like, oh, man, 
He goes to work the next day, already worried about how he's gonna get this treat for her, when he's summoned to the court. And who is he summoned to the court by? He's summoned there, well, by like the magistrate, but because his wife is taking him to court. Yeah. <laughs> it's like... With, with like made up charges. Yeah, dude couldn't afford to get you the right like treat when he didn't have to sp- spend all day in court like defending himself. But he gets there and his wife is like crying. She's like has her arm like in a sling basically like nursing it like she has a broken arm. And like she's making this whole show of like that he beats her when he was the one that just got his tooth knocked out the day before. But it's so funny too because it's like the magistrate actually goes on to like kind of like have compassion for Maroof after hearing his side of the tale. He's like, oh, wow. Yeah, you know what? This uh this is kind of messed up. Here, I'll give you the money to go and buy her this cake and just go home, stop fighting. <laughs> so he's like just paying them off to... Yeah, and just being like, please just get out of my court. <laughs> this isn't the Jerry Springer show. We're not getting any ad revenue in here. But they get home and things do not improve. And even though the magistrate gave him money to buy her like this treat, apparently, he had to pawn his tools of his trade of cobbling uh, in order to pay for the legal costs of having to go to court that his wife took him to. Yeah. Like that's like, you know, cutting your nose off to spite your face sort of a thing. Like what is this lady doing anyway? So they get home and things don't improve. And as a matter of fact, like he finds out that his wife like is pulling him in front of another judge about the whole issue again, like the, all these made up things. And he has to like, they get home, he has to pay like the legal costs from like these two judges. And then he finds out that not only has she brought him in front of these judges twice and making him spend all this money, but he finds out that a third time, like he's being summoned in front of a judge. And he's like, I've already pawned all my tools of my trade, my cobbling tools. Like, like I'm basically living on the streets as is like, I'm just, I'm out of here. I'm done. Like there's nothing to stay for anymore. So he runs away. So as Maruf is running away, there is this sudden downpour and he like is completely soaked, finds shelter as soon as he can, as he gets outside of the city and he finds basically just this cave and he's like, good enough. And he goes inside the cave. And as this guy exhausted from running away and getting rained on is about to settle down for the night, the walls just like crack open and a huge genie comes out. And the genie's like, uh, what is going on? Why are you making such a ruckus? Why are you disturbing me this way? I've been living here for 200 years and no one in that time has ever come in here and disturbed me in such a manner as you, you rude little boy. Can you, can like, I, I'm just like imagining you're like crying in a corner, <laughs> soaking wet, your life is like miserable. And then like somebody, like this like mythical creature, like this like genie like comes through and is like, Oh my gosh, shut up. (laughs) Yeah, and and so much so. And so much that he's like, okay, just tell me what it is that you want and I'm going to help you because you're just so pathetic. Like, I can't help but feel bad for you. (laughs) This poor guy. (laughs) And so Maruf is like telling the genie the story that's happening and the genie's like, oh man, that does sound pretty rough, buddy. How would you like to get carried as far away from Cairo as you could possibly get and get as far away from your wife as possible so that she would like not be able to find you? And Maruf's like, oh yes, I would like that very much. (laughs) And so the genie's like, all right, hop on my back. And he hops on the genie's back and like flies all night. 
until the genie puts Maruf down on like the top of this mountain. And from that moment on, things are going to make a big turn for the better for Maruf. So he finds that he's in this like amazing city. He's walking around and people are looking at him kind of funny and they're like, dude, where are you from? Like you're dressed kind of different. And he's like, oh, I'm from Cairo. They're like, oh, okay. Um, yeah, that that kind of makes sense. Like how long ago did you leave from Cairo? Because it, it's so far away. Like I'm kind of thinking like they would have thought a lot, like it takes a year to get there. Yeah, like where's your bags? Where's your yeah. food? Where's your envoy? Like who did you come here with? Like, And somewhere along the way you might have like gotten some new clothes. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, but it's know. like, yeah, it's like. It's so far away that if some dude just like by himself rocked up in the city and was like, hi, (laughs) the like, how did you walk through the desert without anything, anything with you? Just the clothes on your back. That's impossible. Yeah. And and he's like, oh, yeah, like, I don't know. I left there sometime yesterday afternoon and people like, "Okay, dude, you're nuts. That's impossible. You're crazy. And they just start like, you know, mocking him and, and making fun of him. and. As they are doing so, this merchant comes up and he's like, hey, 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 back off. This is no way to treat, you know, this poor man. And so he gets Maruf and is like, hey, you know, come with me. So as this guy brings Maruf away from this crowd, he's like, oh, hey, like I heard you're from Cairo. What part of Cairo are you from? And Maruf kind of tells him, oh, this place. And this merchant is like, oh, I am also from Cairo. Like, I know that place. Do you know Sheikh Ahmed? And Maruf's like, oh, yeah, I know him. Like, Sheikh Ahmed, he had three sons. He was like this leader and like apothecary. And like he had these sons. One of them went on to be a teacher. Another like took up being an apothecary like his dad. And then the third son, well, uh, he used to be my friend. We used to play together when we were kids. But like he stole some books from these Christian churches and caused a little bit of trouble. And his dad was going to punish him for it because it was kind of creating some bad vibes between, you know, like the religions there and this guy just like took off and left town and the merchant's like oh yeah ali that's me <laughs> <laughs> but they're like oh wow old my, buddy good to see you again good <laughs> friend how fortuitous yeah and so uh it's that that's a pretty good um uh, reunion <laughs> to say the least so Ali goes on to tell Maruf like how he's come from being this, you know, and he w- he was a kid when he was stealing these books and like selling them. But I think it shows it was kind of indicative of his, uh, let's call it entrepreneurial spirit because uh, <laughs> he built himself up to being this like pretty decently wealthy merchant. So Ali starts telling Maruf about how like when he got to town, he didn't have anything, but he's like, you know, I kind of worked my way with some of the merchants and I told them that I was also a merchant, but I was waiting on like a caravan of my goods to come in that had got like delayed. And I asked them if they would lend me a thousand dinars. And so they did. And I took that money, bought some product and started selling it and then, you know, paid back the loan after that. And so Ali's like, Instead of you having to beg somebody for the same thing, I'm going to loan you some money and you're going to pull the same thing and say that you are also a merchant waiting on a caravan to come in and use this thousand dinars to kind of like make those appearances seem even more true. Yeah. And this part of the story has one of my absolute favorite quotes because I was like, oh, my gosh, this totally it very applicable like to today because Ali says to him, he's like, remember the proverb 
This world is all swagger and deceit. <laughs> and he's talking about like the, the like the world of like being uh, an merchants. entrepreneur. Yeah. And he's like, just so that you know, like you can get along just fine with a living like this as long as you remember, like this world is all swagger and deceit. That's hilarious. I was like, that's very astute. <laughs> yeah. Astute and boy does Maroof live up to those wise words yep he goes hard (laughs) maroof goes hard he starts ordering on credit all these like luxurious goods and he starts kind of like giving out money like to give the appearance that he's rich he's like giving out tons of money to like beggars just money flowing out of him like crazy so people like whoa if this guy is that free with his money he must be absolutely loaded So one of the things that Maroof did that kind of made this work so well was like he was giving out this money to these beggars in front of the other merchants and the other merchants then thought that he was really rich. And so when Maroof had like given out all that money, he's like, oh, hey, like I need a little bit of a loan. And he's talking about all this stuff that he's got coming in. And so he's asking these other merchants for a loan. He's like, hey, like if you give me a loan now, I will pay you back double. Like whether that be in the gold amount or whether that be in like the goods that come in. I've got all this great stuff coming in. Like I'll pay you back double what you've given me. And so these merchants are like, oh man, like 100% return on our investment. We're we're in on this. Yeah. So they, they lend him the money. But Ali is like so mad because like dude does not understand how this thing works. He's like, this is how things blow up in our face and get exposed very quickly. Like the point was you were supposed to kind of like use this as a way to just get started, but he got himself so deep in like debt to all these people that there was no way he was going to pay him back. So things are not looking good for Maroof. Yeah. So the debt ended up being something like 60,000 dinars, which is crazy. Um, So Maroof racks up this huge, 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 huge debt. And Ali is like, this is not going to be good. And in fact, Ali kind of knew what he was talking about because these merchants are getting a little antsy as time goes by and the caravan that does not exist (laughs) is obviously not coming in. So they're like, "Uh, where's my money? And they come to Ali because Ali's kind of the one that vouched for Maroof and Maroof's still putting off this like, I'm rich, I'm amazing, like swaggering it to the max. And so Ali's like, hey, this is between you and Maroof. If you got a problem, take it to the king. Like this has nothing to do with me. So the merchants go to the king and they're like, this guy, we lent him all this money because he said he's got this caravan of all this great stuff coming in. And (laughs) the king gets the wrong message from this. Not that this guy is not making good on his debts, but he's like, wait, what? This guy has a ton of money? Like, I got to meet this guy. Which this, like, there's like a line in here, which it's, it's funny to me because it's this, like, it's a diss inside of this story, but that it does not land because we don't know this person. But it's like, the king was a greedy man, more covetous than Ashab. And it's like, ooh, the author really got Ashab real good with that one. And like, apparently this was like, like a notoriously greedy servant of a uh-huh. caliph back in like the 600s. <laughs> And so, yeah, it's just, like, funny to me that it's, like, one of those things where it's, like, like, throwing out a reference that was very relevant when the story was being told. But, like, when you're reading it, you're, like, what? More greedy, 
more greedy and covetous than Ashab. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> boo, Ashab. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's like the king's whole plan is he's like, all right, I'm going to marry my daughter off to this guy so that I can take his fortune. The king's vizier is like, sees right through Maruf and is like, no, 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 no. This guy is a swindler. He is a con man. He's no good. Like, do not do this. So the king's a little suspicious of the vizier and his intentions for trying to like malign Maruf because this vizier has like had the hots for the king's daughter for a long time and been like, hey, let me marry your daughter. Let me marry your daughter. The king's like, "Uh, no, you're a loser. You're way beneath her. The king is like, obviously my vizier is not going to be happy about this. Like, he, my daughter's getting married off to someone else and he yeah he's he jealous it. yeah yeah and so the vizier's like all right let's have you give him one of your gems and have him tell you what he thinks it's worth because if he's really a merchant like he claims to be especially one as like rich and great as he is he'll know what it's worth and if he doesn't know that it's a clear sign that he's not who he says he is so the king is like okay fine we'll do that and so they give him this gem and they're like hey like take check out this awesome gem that i have like how much do you think that this is worth how much could i get for this and maroof who does not have any clue how much this thing could possibly be worth is like uh crushes it in his hand and is like to me it's worth nothing because it's just so low quality like it's like dumping the powder out he's like this is basically just a rock compared to the gems that i have coming in on my caravan that are so amazing like really doubling down on this imaginary caravan saying like, i've got gems the size of walnuts coming in it's like this guy has some some large gems to double down on this con <laughs> in this way. And they're not coming in on an imaginary caravan. And so the king is like, oh man, like there's no way. This guy, like he would not dare to do that if he didn't have anything to back this up. Yeah, it's just so funny because he's he's like, there's no possible way that this man, if if he had nothing, <laughs> would be so brazen as to crush my gem. <laughs> Like and then and call it garbage person. to my face. Yeah, yeah. only a crazy person. <laughs> and it's like, that's kind of exactly what's happening. <laughs> and so the king is like, that's it. He's marrying my daughter. And so the king, again, wanting to get his hooks into Maruf and his fortune is like pressing for him to marry his daughter right away. And the vizier comes to tell Maruf this. And not that the king is trying to like get his money but that he's who wants him to marry his daughter and maroof is like okay wait hold on like this is i'm gonna get myself into some real trouble here because like if i marry her like i will be stuck and like i don't know how i'm gonna get out of this whole like the caravan not coming in so he's kind of like no 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 like i really should wait until the caravan comes in till my wealth is here like i want to have like you know a good dowry for her i want to be able to like lavish my princess I want to be able to give her like this amazing wedding that she deserves and, and all this stuff. And uh, so he's like really trying to do this, like out of self-protection to like not get <laughs> himself in too deep. And the king <laughs> totally misinterprets this and be like, oh my gosh, he's so humble. Like the king is like now convinced beyond like being yeah. Beyond having his mind changed yeah, that like Maruf he was like, has to be who he says he is. Yeah, because he's like, if this guy is a fraud. He would want to marry my daughter. He would be like eager yeah. to marry my daughter. That would be like kind of like the end of the whole grift, right? Is to like right. end up marrying the richest person 
like daughter. And so he's like, there's no possible way that this guy's like faking it because he's saying no to marrying the king's daughter. Now I really want him to marry my daughter. Yeah, it's like obviously that would be the end game of the con. So he yeah. can't be conning if he's not even trying to get that. It's like the king has never been conned before. That's how a con artist wants you to think. Maroof, I'm just like, he. he's like getting, oh gosh, it's such a mess. Where I'm like imagining like that level of stress. Like the only way that you wouldn't be stressed out of your mind at this point, like as of if you were like Maroof, is if like you were delusional. Yeah. This, I'm like, this story, it makes me laugh. It's also, like, so much stress because he just uh-huh. is, like, the hole keeps, he keeps digging just, like, a deeper and deeper hole. And it's yeah, like, his his ugh. solution, his solution to getting out of the trouble that he finds himself in is, like, double down, dig deeper. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's waste, a temporary. Waste more people's money. <laughs> yeah. Destroy more gems. Like, yeah. <laughs> have, have, like, a super expensive wedding. Like, Move, stop. Like, it's just like put off the problems for now in exchange for even bigger problems later. Just with like, oh, like I'll be able to fix this at some point. Yeah. Like, like in no no non-delusional way. Like <laughs> Yeah. I mean he did get beaten up pretty bad by his wife at the beginning of this story. She like, knocked maybe, his head hard. <laughs> yeah. He's he's got a couple of screws knocked loose, I'm sure. So the king, again, nothing can convince him that Maroof is not, you know, the real McCoy, as we would say, in the United <laughs> States. <laughs> and he's like, nope, we're getting you married. He's like calling the priest. And Maroof and kind of maybe like a little bit of a last ditch effort's like, or maybe in an attempt to con the king out of more money. I don't know. What's crazy to me is it's like most of the money he is spending, he's not spending on like himself. He's spending money giving it away to other people. Right. It's it's like the ultimate abundance mentality where he's like, oh, the more I give away, the more I have. And so it's like he's being super generous with other people's money instead of like he's not hoarding it. He's not like getting this money, like taking this money from other people and then like hoarding it and refusing to like give it back. He is just giving it away to like the poor, which I'm like, yeah, buddy, you all. And he keeps digging a deeper and deeper hole. And I don't know whether it's, he's like, oh yeah, they're really going to think I'm wealthy now because I'm even giving, getting rid of all of this money. And it's like, stop. Yeah, I mean, and that continues too because he's like, he's like, he's like, you know what? No, it's not a good idea to get married now because like I really need to wait for my shipment to come in because if I were to get married, like I would want to give gifts to all these people. I would want to give, you know, a feast for the poor. I would want to do like he just is talking about like I would just want to I would want to make monuments. I need to show my love by giving these gifts and just show how devoted to your daughter that I am. And the king's like, no, it's no problem. It's no problem. I'll just tell my treasurer that you can spend whatever you want. And then when your caravan comes in, you'll just pay me back, right? And he's like, absolutely, I will. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. This part of this story gives me so much anxiety. (laughs) And so Maroof goes and... uh, He's, he goes to the treasurer, starts getting money out, starts doing exactly as he said, giving the money away to everybody. And him and the princess 
are married. And they spend their wedding night doing what many newlyweds do. And the story describes it in some pretty extensive, flowery, and like euphemistic, but also uncomfortably detailed ways. <laughs> I mean, we are trying to encourage people to go out and read The Thousand One Night. So it is like, yes. hey. Here's if, a good tease for you. <laughs> yeah. Um, or if I'm like, here's another uh, shout out to like the Patreon where on our Patreon, the outtakes and bloopers that you can get for like $2 a month usually includes us reading all the nasty poetry. <laughs> us meaning Katrina reading all of the nasty poetry and me squirming in discomfort and giggling. <laughs> <laughs> but if that's not worth $2, I don't know what it is. Maru's trouble is not over because, well, of a couple things. The caravan making no signs of showing up anytime soon. The treasurer goes to the king and is like, dude, like this dude is spending all of our money so very quickly. We've got like 12 days left before we are empty. <laughs> and it's like, I don't know if that's 12 days of like their regularly budgeted expenses or 12 days of like Maroof's like, give money away to everyone, like Oprah yeah. style of spending. Um, but you get a gem and you get to, everybody gets a gem. <laughs> So the vizier is able to convince the king to like, hey, ask the princess to ask Maruf to tell the truth about what is going on. And so the princess does ask Maruf. And like, as soon as she asks, he tells her the truth. Everything from his like terrible wife running away. The fact that he was a cobbler, like just everything. And the princess is like, oh, this is not great. And she doesn't want to, like, be shamed. She doesn't want to have to, like, be married to somebody else. And she, like, apparently, like, kind of loves him, actually. And so she's, like... Yeah. She, like... Yeah, it is, like, totally... She realizes that she's, like... She didn't... She had not wanted to marry the vizier before. Yeah. And her dad had, you know, been like, oh, don't. She had just had, yeah, a very public wedding that everybody saw like, in the kingdom, so she doesn't want to, like, disgrace herself or her father. And, yeah, she, like, loved Maruf, so she's like, I'm not going to tell anybody. And then you and I will come up with a plan. So they come up with a plan together, and the plan is basically the princess gives Maruf money, which it's like, when you're dealing with a con man, giving them more money should never be part of the plan, but... <laughs> Yeah, I don't know why she That's was... none of my business. <laughs> <laughs> Kermit the Frog sipping tea. Yeah, it is like, she immediately is like, oh, I can trust you. I don't know whether it's because he had just been very honest and candid with her that she suddenly now forgets that he's been like a con man for basically the last like six months. That she's like, oh yeah, here, take this money and go. So their plan is he'll take that money go off and he'll become a merchant for real this time and either earn enough money to be able to pay everything back and make good or wait until the king dies and he could just come back and hopefully it'll all be cool. Maroof's like, okay, sounds like a great plan. One condition. We have to be able to make love one more time before I go. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm like, that's such 
Like, that's not a good idea. Just because, like, if she gets pregnant, you know what I mean? Like, me thinking like a woman, I'm uh-huh. like, ooh, do not chance it again. Like, you could, ma'am, you could already be pregnant with this, like, grifter's baby. <laughs> like, I wouldn't risk it. But you know what? She makes the decision she makes. It's fine. Yeah. So sh- she agrees. Maruf takes off. And she goes to her father to provide a cover story and saying, like, hey, one of Maruf's people came from his caravan, like bandits attacked it. He has gone out there to like defend and protect his investment. And so like, you know, this explains why the caravan hasn't showed up yet. And he has to go and meet the caravan and bring it back. So like kind of stringing the king along and it's his own daughter. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, and I mean, so he's, yeah. And she says that she like saw somebody deliver the letter like to so now instead of it just being this like maruf saying oh yeah i have a caravan full of people now the king's daughter is saying no 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 i saw somebody come yeah and deliver this letter and tell him all the horrible things that like have been going on with yeah like the bedouins that are supposedly the ones who like attacked Yeah, and then, of course, the king wants to believe this as well, because otherwise, he is also screwed. Yeah. So, Maruf is out there riding in the desert, and he starts to cry. He's missing his wife. Says he is, like, sick with love and longing for Dunya. And it's like, Scheherazade's like, oops, whoops, yeah, I accidentally said the princess's first name. Um, It's it's Dunya. Kind of similar to my sister, Dunyazad. (laughs) And I mean, like, it is always funny when, like, in the middle of the story, that's like when a name you finally get. Yeah. And like, it's also funny because it's like the first sentence of this story. They're like, Fatima's nickname was Dung because she was so <laughs> awful. <laughs> yeah. And then it's like, but this princess that the main character ends up marrying, like, doesn't have a name until all of a sudden we say it. Yeah. For no real reason. So Maruf is wandering through the desert, reciting super sad poetry about how much he <laughs> loves and misses Dunya, until he comes across a peasant who is plowing a field with two oxen. And so the peasant, when he sees Maruf, the way he's dressed in these like fine clothes, he thinks that Maruf works in the palace, like he's obviously someone important. Which I mean, he's not wrong in a way. Like it's the it is the king's son-in-law. Yeah. Uh, but he's like, you look tired, you look hungry, you look very important. Let me go and get you food. And uh so he does. He runs off, gets some food, brings it back. And Maruf to repay this kindness is like, all right, I'll help you, you know, with plowing your field. Yeah, it was like since he felt bad that that guy was gonna miss like a day's work going uh-huh. to get him food. Because like Taking care of strangers, like hospitality is such an important part of the culture uh-huh. that that person was missing out on a full day's work going into town to get right, him to food, get the food for him. that he was like, hey, while I'm here and that guy is gone, I should maybe finish plowing his field to say thank you because yeah. like, I'm kind of a bad person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And. Maruf knows what it's like to miss a whole day's work because he has to spend it in court uh, defending himself against his horrible, horrible wife. And also just the fact that nobody wants his cobbling services. So he just sits there all day and does nothing. So he's like, yeah, that kind of sucks. So yeah. so he starts plowing the field while the guy is gone. 
And while he's doing that, the plow hits something. And so they have to stop and he's like, what is going on? And he finds that the blade of the plow is caught in a gold ring that's attached to this like huge marble slab. And he's like, what could this be? And so he lifts it up. Septic tank. (laughs) And it is a septic tank. No, it's the opposite of a septic tank. Uh, Well, it does say it's a bathhouse. (laughs) This thing. He goes down and he finds that there are just these like chambers that are filled completely to the ceiling. Like there are four of them and one is filled with gold. There's another one. It's filled with emeralds, pearls, coral. The third one with some other gems. And then the fourth one is full of diamonds and other precious gems and precious metals. And in the middle of the chamber, there's this like box full of diamonds. And they're like, again, huge. Each of them the size of hazelnuts. Apparently comparisons to nuts is like how you describe the size of jewels. Yeah, because they're like hazelnuts, walnuts. And on top of that box is another box the size of a lemon, which not a nut this time. (laughs) It's because it's a box, not a gem. That's true. Boxes you compare to fruit. Yes. Gems compared to nuts. (laughs) I understand. And inside of this box, Maru finds a ring engraved with, quote, talismanic names and formula interlaced like the tracks of ants on the ground. And I could only think of one thing, which is... One ring to rule them all. One ring to find them. (laughs) One ring to bring them all and in the darkness bind them. I thought that you were going to say it reminds you of like King Solomon because it doesn't say it, but like that's where right. my, my that's where my brain like immediately went. But I I understand I understand why your brain went where it went. That <laughs> went to that tracks Lord of the Rings for who you are. Uh, so anyway, he finds this magical, powerful ring. That apparently is not supposed to remind me of Lord of the Rings. (laughs) (laughs) And he rubs it. And the genie that lives inside the ring pops out. The second time that this guy is going to get his bacon saved by a genie, by the way. And it's like, I'm here to grant your wishes. He's like, what do you want? Like, I can make the country prosper. I could lay waste to a city. I could kill a king. I could dig a river. I can do whatever you want me to do. Just ask and it'll be yours. It's like, I'm the servant of this ring and I follow the orders of whoever it is that possesses it. The Lord of the Rings is my master, you might say. <laughs> Sorry, Lord of the Ring. The One Ring. <laughs> I'm really enjoying the direction that you're taking this. <laughs> The genie apparently is like just one of many. He tells Maruf like, oh, by the way, like not only do you have command of me, but like I am actually in command of just a ton of different species of gin. And yeah, it's like not only. So it's like the person who controls the ring controls that one gin in there. But that gin is the leader of like thousands of other jinn like his thousands of sons that are his like sons and then like all of the marids that are under him basically like 
every like level of gin that we've like talked about, Efrits and such, are like yeah under his command as well. So it's just like every single gin is controlled basically by that ring through like because of who is trapped in that ring. Yeah. And like, apparently this Jin's like nickname is the father of prosperity, which makes a lot of sense considering he lives in this like amazing cavern, which apparently, you know, that this is some dude's treasure that founded some like thing, like some legendary person's treasure they stumbled across. And it's like, Hey, and guess what? You found it finders keepers. And so like, with the help it's of 800 of the Jin's children, like they start unloading all this treasure into coffers and are, you know, so that Maruf can take it back to the king. The Jin start transforming themselves into the stuff needed. They start turning into animals to pull the carts. They start ter- turning themselves into like people that are dressed up like servants of a very rich and royal person. And they form this giant caravan that is like a splendid and beautiful caravan that is going to arrive back in the city, just like Maruf said was going to happen all along. And it also sounds kind of familiar to something I've seen, but I can't put my finger on it. <laughs> Prince Ali, fabulous Ali And uh, Maruf not content with just all this bountiful treasure of gold and precious jewels is like, hey, do you think we could get some like great fabrics from all over the world as well? And the genie's like, no problem. Makes it happen. In the middle of just all this unbelievable wealth and this like caravan that appears out of nowhere, the peasant who went to go get Maruf some food comes back with a bowl of lentil soup and is feeling kind of like, oh man. (laughs) What a letdown I must be. I thought I was doing this really nice thing. But he presents the bowl to Maruf. And Maruf had like, you know, he has a a gin that can do anything. So he had like a a big feast basically summoned that he could eat. And But Maruf, when he sees this guy coming back with the lentils, he's like, no, you went out of your way to do this for me. Like, you went out of your way to go and get this lentil soup. Like, I'm going to eat the soup. This feast back behind me, all this delicious food, that's for you, man. Like, you go and eat to your heart's content. I'm going to eat the soup. And so Maruf does. He eats the lentil soup. And when he empties out the bowl, he fills the bowl up with gold and gives it back to this guy, you know, paying him back for the kindness that he had done to Maruf. Because without that, Maruf would not have stumbled across this thing. And it's also kind of like part of me is thinking, if the (laughs) peasant had just kept plowing for a little longer, maybe he would be the one that (laughs) stumbled across all this fabulous wealth. But also, yeah, that's one of those things with like fate is that like, it wasn't that guy. It wasn't fated for him to do it. Yeah. It wasn't fated. It was fated for Maruf because Maruf was the one that had the jewels to put on this elaborate con and (laughs) promise things that he couldn't fulfill, but is going to anyway. But yeah, I mean, I undercut it, but that was like a really touching part of the story to be like, yeah, like there's just stuff. There's like parts in the story where I'm like, Maruf is like a good person. Because that's the thing. Like, also, if Maruf had not, if he had just sat there crying, waiting for the lentil soup to come back, he wouldn't have found the ring either. Like, he wouldn't have found like the, the latch to get into the yeah. like the cavern or whatever. The what, what was it? Underground bathhouse. Uh-huh. And so because he had made that choice that like he was like, oh, that guy did a nice thing for me. I'm going to do a nice thing for him. I'm going to finish up his hard work because he did that. Yeah. He like found that he was able to find it. I'm going to tell you. 
easily just sat there and done nothing. Maroof and his caravan laden with silks, fabrics, and jewels of all kinds makes their way back to the city. And as they're arriving, Maroof sends a letter off to his father-in-law using like the gin as a messenger to look super fancy. I, I um, imagine not as a gin, but as... Yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. Like... Maintaining the ruse. Yeah, exactly. And so now that the caravan has arrived and it is like even more amazing, I think, than people had expected, Maroof's credibility is just completely sealed. Well, especially because like at this point, everybody was very much like, yep, he fooled everybody. That money is like, we're never getting that money. Like they'd basically all written it off like as a loss. All the people who had lost only a couple thousand dinars were like, oh, just written it off as a loss. The king probably wasn't ready to write it off as a loss. But yeah, it's like he comes into town and everyone's like, oh my gosh, he wasn't lying. That's insane. (laughs) Don't we, don't we feel foolish? (laughs) So, you know, he's reunited with the princess. He gives her all these beautiful gifts and jewels. It's like she's getting, you know, a good return on her investment for staying loyal to Maloof and not, you know, just dropping him like the scumbag con artist that he kind of (laughs) was. Yeah. But hey, you know, she's rewarded too. Yeah. And so he, you know, Maroof pays back the money into the treasury, pays back double all the people that he's taken money from. And being reunited with Dunya, the princess, she is convinced herself that like, oh, he was testing me. Like he was this rich merchant all along, but because he's rich and he's suspicious of people trying to get his money, like he was testing me to see if I was going to be loyal to him. So he lied to me yeah, essentially about being a con man and that this was all a con. Like it really was true that he had this caravan coming in. And I'm so glad that like, I do love him. I did love him. And I stood by him even in those circumstances yeah, because like, I now st- <laughs> the I stood caravans by him. come in. She's like, I stood by him even when I thought he was penniless. Yeah. So she's feeling pretty good about herself. Everyone's getting paid back on their investment. Everyone is happy except that stinking vizier. That because stinking vizier. He is still suspicious. He's like, something funny's going on. I don't understand what he has any reason to be suspicious about anymore. Honestly. Yeah, no, now it is just about him. Not getting with Yeah, Dunya. Yeah, like not getting with Dunya. I mean, basically, everybody, like the king being like, wow, you were so wrong. You totally have egg on your face. Yeah, but it's so funny because... Like, even though he's suspicious and a weasel, like, he's also right. Yeah, he was, yeah, like, he was right the whole time. (laughs) Yeah. So he's still like, this is a trick. Let's find out what's going on. So he's like, hey, King, take Maroof out. Get him three sheets to the wind drunk, which I would love to know where that expression comes from, three sheets to the wind. But that's another podcast episode. Um, And, like, get him to tell you everything. And so I just assume that the king is like, you know what? I could do with an excuse to go out and get drunk with my son-in-law. Like, fine. <laughs> so they go and they do it. And Maroof gets drunk. And yeah, he starts spilling the beans about the ring. And- oh my gosh, Jeff, I'm so sorry. I looked up 
the origin to three sheets to the wind. Okay. It is a nautical expression. Duh. And basically, yeah, so many things are. <laughs> and basically, so it says the sheet in the phrase uses the nautical meaning of a rope that controls oh. the trim of sail. So yeah, if, if a sheet is loose, then the sail flaps around and does not provide any control to the ship. Uh, so basically, if, so if you have, you three have sheets, if you have three sheets to the wind, that means like your your own personal sail is <laughs> author. You have no control over the ship, the ship being you. Yeah, love it. And that's, you know what? Not worthy of a whole episode. So I'm glad you looked it up. <laughs> All right. So Maroof, three sheets to the wind, drunk, starts blabbing. He just tells him all about it. Tells him about the ring. Tells him about, you know, the gin that he controls, like all the crazy, amazing stuff about it. And the vizier's like, oh, great. Good to know. Takes the ring, summons the gin, and is like, hey, gin, take this guy into the most distant, desolate, barren wilderness where there's nothing to eat or drink and let him die of hunger and thirst and grief out there without anybody knowing about it. And so the djinn's like, cool, 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 cool. I'll do that. Sends him off. And the king is like, wait, what? What is going on? He's feeling a little betrayed. He's like, what? Maroof lied to me? And the vizier's like, oh yeah, by the way, take the king and do the same thing to him. Then the djinn takes him out, banishes him into the desert. And so the vizier's like, all right, time for my hostile takeover that I've been planning all along, probably. <laughs> I mean, he he really wants to get with Dunya. That's the main thing. But he's like, I yeah. can also become the sultan. And I'm also super, like, powerful now that I have control of this ring. Like, it's working out better than I ever could have imagined. Because I'm sure he had aspirations to become, oh, like, yeah. the sultan or whatever. To become I'm the sure, king. Yeah, I'm sure that was like his real reason for wanting to marry Dunya yeah. in like the first place. So he's like, all right, time to marry the princess. And Dunya very wisely is like, oh, yes, I'll marry you. But let's wait until the legal period of widowhood is gone since you've killed my husband. Yeah. And like, I want to do this thing right. And he's kind of like, I don't care. All of the religious leaders, all of the judges, they're like in an uproar too because he's like, let's get us married. And they're like, we can't. Like that's against the law. And that's against like not just the law of like the land, but that's like against like the law of God and our religion. Yeah. And the vizier is like, I don't care. I'm not waiting any longer. I don't care if she doesn't consent. Like I'm going to sleep with her. And Dunya is not happy about this. but. She plays along so that she can preserve herself for as long as possible. It's like preserve her life, I'm assuming. Yeah. And And give her a chance to make some moves. And there's like a poem that she says, which I think has like a, it speaks to more than just this story. She says, by my cunning, I achieved what I could not get by the sword. And I came back with spoils, which had been sweet to win. And so, like, so she, like, she has a cunning plan that she's like, you know what? I will play along because I've got this. Yeah. So he takes her off to have his way with her. And she's, like, going along with it to the point that they get, you know, secluded or whatever. And then, and then 
she's like kind of like refusing to sleep with him. And her reasoning is like, I'll do it. I, but I just like the, your ring is like freaking me out. I can see like the face of like the gin or something, or there's like a big flaming eye that's looking from the East at me from the ring. That's another Lord of the Rings reference. It doesn't say that in the book. I, you, oh, I know you look I was, confused. I, yeah, <laughs> like, I was where's like, he getting this crap about the flaming eye? It's yeah, Sauron, like, okay? Yeah, yeah. I was like, I was like, oh my gosh, that's really interesting. I hadn't, like, I didn't see that. And in what translation does it? The Jeff like, translation. <laughs> you're like Lord of the Rings. Could yeah. Be. So, it, but she sees like you know the the Jin's face. She's like, there's somebody looking at me from the ring. Like, I that's not cool. So she's like, just take it off and then we'll go for it. And so he's like, all right, fine. He takes off the ring and puts it down. And she's like, ha, you fool. And she grabs it. You're like, you're such a moron. And so (laughs) she is now the lady of the ring. And she summons the djinn and like undoes all the crap that the stupid vizier does, brings her father back, brings her husband back. And she takes charge. I immediately thought of like, uh, Galadriel and she's like and in the place of a dark lord you shall have a queen <laughs> Yeah, that's what Dunya does she just becomes like powerful and she tells her father okay here's what's going to happen you're going to make Maruf my husband your grand vizier and we're going to go forward from there like you can be the king again my husband will be your grand vizier but I am going to hold on to this ring this is mine Dunya then brings out the vizier. She's like, bring him out here. Like, we're going to put him to death because he showed himself as being this evil man. Like, he would not go with the law even. He would not do the things the right way. Like, he showed himself as being not a true believer in God. So kill him and burn his body. And they do. Six years go by. And things continue on. She's got the ring. Her father's the king. Maruf is the grand vizier. Her father then dies, and Maruf becomes the king in her father's place. And Dunya now has a child who is a boy. But when the boy is five years old, she gets sick, and she's about to die. And as she's about to die, she hands the ring over to Maruf, finally. Uh, And... Just like a few nights after this, Maruf is lying in bed and he wakes up in the middle of the night because he can sense someone is in his bedroom. And he looks over and next to him in bed is his first wife, Fatima, lying right next to him. And he is freaked out. He is not happy. He has dung all in his bed. <laughs> and she's like, it's me, your wife. And he's like. When he looked at her, he recognized her by her misshapen features and her <laughs> long teeth. They spare no. No detail. No detail to describe how ugly she is, which rude as it is. Yeah. It is also interesting because you learn something about kind of the beauty standards of the time. You know, like by what they were not. Like if they're saying, like these are the features that they had that were not attractive. You like kind of by process of elimination knows like, well, if that's not attractive, then the opposite of that is going to be attractive or the lack of that. Anyway, but it's you know, because sometimes it's surprising the yeah. types of things that are, you know, what the beauty standards of other times are, which I find interesting. So we can learn through yeah. these horrible insults of this. <laughs> 
poor woman, which, I mean, she's horrible, so who cares? <laughs> <laughs> so she tells her story of how she came to be in his bed in the middle of the night because <laughs> he was supposed to be taken so far away that his wife was not going to be able to track him down. And yet track him down, she did. And she's talking about how, like, after he left, she realized how bad she felt about how she mistreated him. The real thing is that she was very poor because her husband was not there to make whatever meager living they had been making before. So she was like, Are you, you're shaking your head. That's not what happened. Oh, no, that is. I'm 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 disgruntled about like this woman that it was like she was she had been so upset that he hadn't been able to make enough money for her to buy her the food that she wanted, like the treat. It wasn't yeah. even like a necessity. It was like a treat. Yeah. He couldn't buy her like that treat that she wanted. So then she like sued him into poverty. And then when he disappears, she's like, well, who's going to buy stuff for me now? <laughs> it's like, oh, poor like, me. Now I have to live in poverty. It was like, yeah, you so did I this was, to yourself, lady. Yeah. So I was shaking my head about like just like the audacity. Um, not because you were getting anything wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and so like one day as she's feeling sorry for herself, crying and hungry and absolutely miserable, a being appeared, a mystical being, and asked her like, hey, what's the deal? Why are you crying? When she starts telling the story, this being finds out that she was married to Maruf, and he's like, oh, Maruf, I know Maruf. He's kind of famous among the mystical beings because he's kind of our big boss man these days. Our big boss man. It's like, if you're his wife, I got to take you to him. And so, you know, that's how she was able to find him because, you know, by a djinn, he was traveled to the faraway place. By another djinn, he'll, she will be taken to him. Yeah. And she's like, so that's how I got here. And so I thought this was kind of funny. She's there and Maruf's like, okay, listen, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you your own palace, give you your own people to take care of you. But, like, just stop being such a horrible person and stay away from me. Stay over there. Yeah. Like, I mean, his his bad move was, like, he explained to her that he, he like, told her his whole story, his whole deal, like, a friend right. in the ring. And yeah. that's how he became a king, which I was like, buddy, why did you tell this woman that? But, yeah, that's exactly it. Like, he immediately is doing the right thing by being, like, I am legally married to you. I am still legally married to you. I feel sorry for you. I will make sure that you are comfortable like the rest of your days. But yeah, don't talk to me because like you're just kind of the worst, which I think that's fair. Yeah, totally. I think fair. like that is like the fairest possible thing that yeah. he could. I think I think it's more than generous. Yeah, definitely. Because like I feel like as a king. He could even just say, like, this woman snuck into my room at night and tried to kill me. I'm going to have her executed. Yeah, he and didn't then, have like, to problem admit. Problem solved. She didn't, he yeah. didn't have to admit that he was she was his wife. Like, nobody yeah. knew that. I mean, I guess the gym might have, but it's like yeah. he's he, like, controls them. He's yeah. in and it's charge like, of them. I, it's like, again, like, Maruf is doing something that, like, just shows that, like, he is a good person. Like, right. he was, like, he... Some of the decisions that he made, they're unhinged, but yeah. like, but also like he, he does do right things. So yeah, it's like he took, like he set it up and was like, you I'll make sure you're comfy, but stay the heck away from me. 
And another thing was kind of interesting is like, you're not going to be able to sue me anymore and like try to use the law against me because I <laughs> am the law, <laughs> which I thought was just a fun little, uh, no, yeah, little dig. It's perfect. So Fatima gets set up in her palace. She does not make great efforts to stay away from Roof. As a matter of fact, she's trying to kind of like work her way back into his good graces somehow. Which I feel like she should just, you know, cut her losses and, like, get what she's got. She's, like, getting way yeah. better than she ever had before. Like Seriously. But anyway, she keeps trying to get back in his good graces, but he's having none of it. He just ignores her. He's busying himself with his concubines because he's the king. He can do whatever he wants. Like, he does not need this horrible woman mm-hmm. in his life at all. And she gets very, very upset very jealous and she knowing about the ring also gets this idea in her head of like oh you know what like i'm going to steal the ring and i'm going to become the leader of all of this stuff i'm going to become all powerful i'm going to and i'm going to kill him and just like take over the kingdom morning now dawned on the 1000th day And Dunyazad said to Shahrazad, her sister, how pleasant are these words, which have a greater effect on the heart than bewitching glances, and how splendid are these remarkable books and strange anecdotes. And Shahrazad said, oh, but wait till tonight, because what happens at the end of this story is even more incredible still. And Shahrazad looks at the king and she says, if I am permitted to finish. And King Sharyar gives her, you know, kind of a smile and a knowing look. And he gets up and he walks out of the room. And Dunyazad and Shahrazad, for the thousandth morning in a row, sit and wait. And King Sharyar goes into his throne room with a smile on his face, thinking to himself how excited he is to hear the end of this story. And in walks his vizier, Shahrazad's father. And for the thousandth morning in a row, he is holding the shroud that he believes one of these days he's going to be burying his daughter in. But King Shahryar doesn't announce an execution just like he has not announced an execution the last thousand days. He sits down at his seat and he performs all of his kingly duties for that day, delivering judgments among his subjects. And then when he was done with his day, he walked back into his harem to his usual place that he was every night for the last thousand nights, which was beside his wife. Shahrazad. And when he sat down by Shahrazad, Dunyazad said, finish the story of Maruf the cobbler for us. And Shahrazad said, with pleasure, if the king allows me to tell it. And he nods his head and says, I do, because I want to hear the rest of it. And then Shahrazad continues. On the 1000 and first night. So, Fatima knows about the ring, and she also knows that Maruf always takes it off when he makes love because he wants to show respect 
to the names of God that are engraven on it. And so he like takes it off and he doesn't put it back on until he's gone to the baths and like purified himself, which is interesting. But she knows that she has an opportunity to get in there and take the ring. So I think it's for I think it's for religious reasons. Well, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> I I know I know it's oh, for <laughs> religious reasons. It's just it's just interesting to me. So Fatima sneaks into the room one day while the ring is off of Maruf's finger. As she's going in to the room, Maruf's son notices and knows like that this lady is up to no good. So he follows her with a sword to see what she is going to do. And she goes in, she grabs the ring, and as soon as she does, before she's able to summon any djinn or do anything, Maruf's son chops her head right off. She falls down dead, and Maruf comes back from the bath to this just like absolute bloodbath of his son (laughs) having murdered his first wife. And his son, I think, is like, like six or seven years old. Like he's still like young. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's like, it's not like, you know, like an 18 year old, like a 21 year old. It's like, a, it's a child. Yeah. But Maruf is, he's not mad. <laughs> and he sees, yeah. <laughs> and because he sees that she had the ring in her hand and she, under, and he understands like, oh, like she was not going to do good things with that ring. Like it was going to be real yeah. bad news for me. Like, I'm so glad that my son was able to be here for me and protect me from whatever horrible things this woman was going to do. So now that Fatima is taken care of, she's gone, doesn't have to worry about it. Maruf sends for that peasant who had brought him the bowl of lentil soup before. And he's like, dude, you're going to be my vizier, which I think is kind of nice. Yeah. I like that we're getting that guy back in here. He was a good guy. One of my favorite characters in the whole in the whole story, even though he didn't have a big part. Maruf marries once again and raises his son and sees his son be married as well. And they lived in just a great and happy existence as the days passed until (laughs) as all these stories end, like they died as all things do. And like, we're one with the earth or whatever. Uh, That's not what it says. (laughs) One with the earth or whatever. (laughs) They lived, you know, they lived a happy life until, as all people do, they died. (laughs) It's like, uh, until the moment he carried them off. He who brings an end to all pleasures of this world, parts of those whom life has joined together, ruins the richest houses and makes orphans of girls and boys. The end. (laughs) Like It's such a comforting (laughs) formulaic end to these stories every time. It's like they lived happily ever after. No, they lived happily until they died by he who takes who puts an end to all pleasure, who makes orphans, who like separates those who had been joined in life. It's like, dang, always gotta remind us of our own mortality. And that death comes to us all. Good night. Shaharazad every single day. <laughs> Death for it comes for us all. Good night. Oh, that's dark because like it could be her death that it comes. It could be to her, her the death next that comes. Yeah, <laughs> it's all coming together. So when Shaharazad was done telling the story of Maruf, she got to her feet before 
bending down and kissing the ground in front of the king. And she said, King of the age and unique ruler of this time, I am your servant. And for a thousand and one nights, I have been telling you stories of past generations and moral tales of our predecessors. May I hope to ask you to grant me one request. And the king, since this is obviously changed from what normally happens in his nights when she gets to like the end of the story, he is like, ask me your wish and I will grant it to you. And she calls for her maids to come to her and she whispers something to them and the maids like walk out of the room and when the maids come back in there is one little boy who is walking into the room there's another little boy who is crawling into the room and there is one little baby newly born who is being held Uh, walk that the nurse like walks into the room that's kind of like a sweet little image yeah of like just like the three of them And when they bring them in, Shahrazad said, King of the age, these are your children. And my wish is that as an act of generosity towards them, you free me from sentence of death. For if you kill me, these babies will have no mother and you will find no other mother to bring them up so well. And at this, the king realizing that this woman, which this for me kind of stretches the believability, the fact that he spent the last 1001 nights with this woman, she's had three babies and like he has not commented on it at all, um, stretches the imagination for me, but it's fine. But he realizing that he has been the only person who has spent 1001 nights with her, that these children could only be his children he knows what like a good and virtuous woman she is. And he says to her, even before the arrival of these children, I had intended to pardon you as I have seen that you are a chaste and pure woman, free born and God fearing. He said, I call God to witness that I have decided that no harm will come to you. And Shahrazad goes to him and she kisses his hands and his feet and praises him brings down blessings like upon him and it says joy spread through the whole palace and from it into the city. And I like that again, there's this like from the last story, the section where it says this was a night that stood outside the ordinary span of life because it was like, I just, I love that as like, as a term of just like this day was so like wonderful and memorable that it seemed like it stands outside of like time itself. So the next day, like when the sun like came up, King Shariar goes out and there again is the vizier holding the shroud that is meant for Shahrazad. So King Shariar goes up to his vizier with these splendid and magnificent robes of honor. And he, the king presents them to the vizier and he says, may God shelter you because you gave me your noble daughter as a wife. And it is thanks to her that I have turned in repentance from killing the daughters of my subjects. I have found her noble, pure, chaste, and without sin. God has provided me with three sons by her and I give thanks to him for this great good fortune. And so he's basically like honoring him, acknowledging that like you are such a good vizier and we have had a bunch of stories about bad viziers and we really haven't uh-huh. like touched on that like at all during like the last year. 
But in all the stories of like bad viziers, we have this vizier who he didn't want to give his daughter to this king because he knew what was happening. He knew that like yeah. he was murdering the women, but he allowed it to happen. He gave up his daughter for the greater good, which was stopping this man from like killing all the women in the entire city. Yeah. And so he is like honoring the king for doing that. And so basically for like 30 days and nights, there were like partying and gifts and like the whole kingdom was rejoicing because all of the women now knew that they were safe. All of the daughters out there who had been like worried or had been even fleeing the city before this to be spared like they were all rejoicing because the kingdom could be whole again. Like it all was coming back to the goodness that the kingdom was before all of this started. And the story ends a little bit differently than how the stories have been ending with like, they all lived happily ever after until the <laughs> destroyed lights or whatever. Um, in some versions of the story at the end, King, Sharyar has all of the scribes come so that they can write down all of the stories from the mm. Thousand and One Nights, which I think is beautiful because then it turns it all into this like big loop. Yeah. And then there's this section that is like in praise of like God, which is kind of similar to how we've been seeing like stories end. And then it says, it is through him that we pray to God to bring us to a good end oh and that's how it ends instead of it being like and then the destroyer were like it kind of it brings everybody like in who's listening to the story which is important when it says like like we hope that we come to a good end because yeah. there's still that acknowledgement that we all will die right but may it be a good death may it be that all of us who are listening are able to have a good death yeah and that is the end of the Thousand and One Nights. Good night. (laughs) (laughs) So a lot to talk about now, right? (laughs) Yeah. So before we get to King Shariar and Shaharzad, let's talk about Maruf the Cobbler. So at the beginning of the episode, when we started telling the story, I mentioned the women that we were going to talk about in the story. And I said that this tale sounds a little familiar to another story that people might be like already knowledgeable about. I think you gave it away by singing earlier, but it's 100% (laughs) Disney's Aladdin or Aladdin generally. Yes. So what is like really interesting about this story is that it does not appear in any of the works of Antoine Galan. Mm. But people believe that because of a lot of the similarities that it has with the story that he wrote down, based off of what he said was a storyteller, the storyteller Hannah Diab, he said that the story of Aladdin was told to him by the storyteller, right? Yeah. But nobody can, like, really verify what story he's talking about that this the storyteller is a well-known storyteller. 
he feasibly could have heard a story from the storyteller, but there isn't one that's like Aladdin. But this is the closest thing that there is to that. So inside of Stranger Magic by Marina Warner, she says, This closing tale of the nights shadows in many features the better-known story of Aladdin, and Antoine Galland, who does not include it in his edition, might have written up his famous tale of the wonderful lamp from a version of Maruf told to him by Hannah Diab. So I know I told everybody we weren't going to do Aladdin. (laughs) But we kind of did. But we kind of did for uh, our finale. I thought that was like really, like really fitting because the features that people might have that are similar, obviously evil vizier, a poor penniless guy kind of conning his way a little bit into wealth, but also fate having him come across a genie, a cave of wonders, like full of all these riches. And then Entering that city with like that whole group mm-hmm. and all of like his riches, I seriously all I could think about was Disney's Aladdin and that whole like parade scene. Yeah. Oh yeah. Totally. And then there was also the fact that like the vizier was able to take away the yeah. like the genie basically and be like, now I'm taking over the kingdom and. Like, I'm the one in charge now. But the thing that I love so much in this story is how the woman is able to trick her way into saving the day. Yeah. That was pretty cool. And it's very important to the frame story, too, I think. I mean, obviously. Because that's kind of one of the things that it's all about. And I kind of like the fact that Because part of the thing that we have talked about is that the reason that Scheherazade is telling lots of these stories is to show that, yes, there are some terrible women in the world, but there are also some good women. And this one is very interesting and nuanced in the sense that it's like she is a good woman, but she also uses her ability to, like, be clever and, like, tricky in order to help her husband. Like, she has these skills that she can use to, you know what I mean? Like, to... yeah. To help to help her husband, you know, and like, yeah, and, and that she yeah. was loyal to him, and it's like, you know, some people, some women may use their intelligence for bad purposes, as we see throughout yeah. the nights. But there are some that use use the same things that in different contexts could be seen as like tricky or whatever for like for good, and it's actually just smart and cunning rather than like yeah, malicious. It, yeah, especially because it's like you have the vizier who is also tricky and sneaky and like using his like cunning to and so it's interesting because like so many of these stories include good and bad men but then like the focus becomes about like the women and the the focus is on the women because of the frame story like itself and yeah so it's it's interesting that this woman is showing like oh i'm gonna use that cunning that women, like all women supposedly, you know, have this cunning and this like sneakiness to help my husband, to like help do the right thing, which is exactly what Shahrazad has been doing the entire time. Right. She's been using her sneakiness and her cunning to stop the king 
from killing like up to this point it's saved the king from killing a thousand women yeah because if he had killed her he just would have like kept on going so it's like every night that she does not get killed she's also saving another woman from like being killed yeah and it's like yes does she have a sneaky conniving plan? Yes. Is is the king afraid of women who have sneaky conniving plans? Yes. But sometimes those plans are for like the good. Yeah. And there's a quote that goes right along with this. This one's in Stranger Magic though. We're not So it says Maruf the Cobbler is also strategically placed as the closing tale of the whole book. Fatima, the husband-bashing termagant who complains to the courts about her husband, does have her head cut off. She is set up in conscious counterpoint by Shahrazad and by the narrator who is telling Shahrazad's story, since Fatima concedes to the bloodthirsty sultan that shrews do exist, and that a meek and willing husband like Maruf at the start of the story can be unjustly treated. But at the same time, the story makes plain that Fatima is an individual case. The misogyny of its appalling descriptions of her behavior and her ugliness does not extend to all women. Dunya, the princess, belongs to the group of astute, enterprising, and loving heroines in the night, dominating from the wings. It is important that she takes control of the ring with its talismanic enigmas, the ring is the source of fortune, and both she and her son after her understand the powers that it confers, as well as the limits of those powers, and they understand them better, it is implied, than the feckless blaggers like Maruf, whose destiny in its capriciousness has favored. One thing that this quote, I really like how it points this out, and I don't think we've discussed this, in our other discussions about why does... Shahrazad tells stories where women are doing bad things when she's trying to prove that, like, no, women are good. The king already knows that his experience is that, like, women aren't good, that they can do bad things. And so if Shahrazad had only told stories about women doing wonderful things, the king wouldn't have believed that because that has not been his experience. He had his brother's wife cheated on his brother, his wife cheated on him, and then he met the woman uh, with the gin, the woman who was kept in the the chest and then was cheating on that gin every opportunity she had. Uh Like, these are all examples that the king had seen before. And so he knew that bad women existed in the world. So what Shahrazad needed to show him was that, yes, she fully understands that there are bad people in this world, but, like, some bad women are not all bad women. Yeah, for sure. So there was a book by Maria Tatar that came out in September of this year. And (laughs) I... Got a hold of a copy of it and I, you know, decided because I didn't have time to like read all this book, like right this second, um, right when I got it. So I decided to look up to see if there was like any good quotes, you know, about Shahrazad, because I assumed that in this book, whose title is 
The Heroine with a Thousand Faces. Mm-hmm. That's a play off of the uh, title of Joseph Campbell's Yeah, Hero book, with a Thousand Faces. The Hero with a Thousand Faces, yes. So I figured in a book with that title, there'd be a little something about Shahrazad, and there absolutely was. And I was like so frustrated that <laughs> there was so much good stuff in here that I was like, oh my goodness, why couldn't she have written this book earlier? But I realized that not every book that I want to have been written has been (laughs) written yet. Which is like a really frustrating thing to become aware of. Like not not every book that I need right now has been written yet. Yeah, unfortunately. Unfortunately. But anyway, I did get some good quotes from it that I definitely like wanted to use. So this quote from the heroine with a thousand faces is Shahrazad not only saves her own life but also transforms Shariar from a tyrannical despot into an enlightened and compassionate ruler the cliffhangers she crafts educate the king by exposing him to the entire spectrum of human behavior arousing his desire to know not just what's next but also why She tells stories, but she also creates a partnership in which there is much to talk about, so much so that the king presumably comes to a better understanding of how to rule. Stories like the ones in The Thousand and One Nights fire us up and demand processing through conversations about the messages they send. I thought that was a super good quote, just because what we've been doing like the entire year is taking stories from the thousand and one nights, getting fired up about them and then processing them through conversation. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I'm like, Oh, that's exactly like what's going on. But I have a question about, uh, what do we think about King Shariar? Is he a changed man? Is he redeemed? Is he redeemable? Is he redeemed? Like, is he redeemed in our eyes? Like, at the end of the story, are we satisfied that, like, oh, he's a much better person than he was before, all is forgiven? I mean, me personally, kind of not. Like, we don't really actually see that much change. The only change is, like, oh, like, yeah, I'm not going to kill Shahrazad anymore. Like, yeah. and, I, and he didn't kill, like you said, he didn't kill a thousand other women either in that time but it's like it's not like he was the one that made that choice like he was making the choice that he wanted to keep hearing stories and like do i think that he may have been like softened a little bit like yeah but it he i don't know like i i would say it lacks evidence to Mm -hmm. uh support a claim that he is like changed and or redeemed yeah this like this is really complicated for me just because he did so much bad, right? Like yeah. he he killed a lot of innocent women who had like done nothing wrong. And so I think he is changed. I'm remembering the episode that we did earlier in this year that was the animal stories mm-hmm. that started off with the wolf and the fox. But inside of that episode, we talked about how that was kind of when King Shariar started to talk with Shaharazad. It's one of the only spots in the middle of it where they have conversation. Yeah. And where he is like asking for stuff. And he even says, like, he even comes to kind of a realization then that he shouldn't have been killing all of those women. Right. And that's pretty much like the like the only evidence that we have throughout the last like 
three and a half years of stories that are being told. Mm -hmm. That's kind of like the only time when we can see that he is starting to change and is being affected by the stories. And so it's like, is he changed? Yes, I do think that he's changed, but I don't know, you know, how I feel about him as a character, like at the end, like it's not, it's not all, all right. Yeah. And I think that's one of the big complications that arises when new adaptations of this story are being presented to audiences today is they have to do something about that problem. And so some people, when they're adapting this for a modern audience, will make it so that he's kind of announced that he's going to kill every woman. But then Shahrazad is like the first right. woman. Yeah. And so he ends up not killing any. He doesn't any kill woman. any. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah, that, I feel like that kind of works. Yeah. It's like, it's a way around it so that like yeah. modern audiences can like him because it's at no point in this story am i rooting for king shariar right. <laughs> like it's just rooting for like shaharazad like the entire time yeah definitely i think one thing that may like help and it's hard to see again like we talked that we don't really actually learn very much about him as a character or as a person or the change that he goes through like you said it's like mostly it's just like and that was the end of the night. And then he left and then he came back and let's tell another story. And then it's like, oh, hey, what stories do you want to hear? I want to hear some about birds. Maybe I shouldn't kill women. Anyway, bird stories, please. <laughs> you know, like there's not a lot there, but it's like Maybe. we don't even see through Shahrazad's eyes like that she had like that she cares for him, that this was anything more than a plan to save and which is a good plan. I'm not saying this says anything bad yeah, about yeah, her, yeah, but it's yeah, like, yeah. you know, like to save other women throughout the the country so that they're not going to be killed. And it's like, even at the end, she's like, here's my last little trick. I'm going to bring out my children and say like, look at these children, look at all this good stuff. You know, like let's not, please don't kill me. Like, let's stop this. Like, let's stop this whole thing. Like and end it. But like, if there was something that he, he did show himself, like we just don't see him. We don't see him as a person. We don't get to know him. We don't see her like through her eyes, like, getting to know him and actually care about him and seeing the good qualities. Like we only see lack of bad qualities anymore of wanting to, and then following through on killing people. I think that's an interesting thing that you're kind of bringing up too, which is that, um, they, it's not, it's not a love story. Like a lot of times it is presented as like a love story yeah. where she's like falling in love with this man, like during the course of like the years. But there is, there is no evidence of it being like a love story the way that we think of a love story. Yeah. Where, because it is like, yes, she has had his kids. Like coercion yeah. isn't consent. Right. Um, like it was. And so, yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. So Which there is another is, was you were just gonna say that's another complicating yeah, it's another thing with him. it's another complicating factor with him is like, you know, like it's hard to to root for him when again, you know that he's basically like he's got this woman at the point of a sword, like yeah. death at any moment. And so like, oh yeah, like they sleep together and have kids. It's like she's n- not in a position to make that decision. Like 
Yes. She's not in a position that you can know that she's not being coerced into that decision too. So it's like, yeah, like we're being asked to forgive like a serial murderer and a serial rapist, you know, like, yeah, yeah. It's just like, it's very, very tough unless you change a lot of things about that. Like, unless you do make it into a, a love story, unless you do make it into a thing where he doesn't actually kill anyone. He just says that he's going to, but he's, you know, more, you know, all bark and no bite or whatever. Like, yeah. And that's what like the, the complications with when people like a lot of our audience at the beginning of this series, what they were familiar with, with a thousand one nights was probably very different from what we covered this year. Oh yeah. I mean, we even talked about how like that first episode where we're telling what the frame story is. And it's a lot of stuff that, you shouldn't have been told as a kid. Yeah. Like uh, it's good. It's good that you did like that. Nobody was like, here's a book for children. Even in Maria Tatar's new book, she, she talks about that. She mentions that, that like this book in her home, she has a memory of this book being in her home and that it was not for kids to read. And as teenagers, they thought they were being like sneaky by like, you know, pulling it down because there was supposed to be, you know, some kind of forbidden stories like in there. And so the stories that people are most familiar with and the tales of the nights that people are usually presented with are stories where it is presented as like a love story or, and it's presented in a way where you can be rooting for like King Shariar and for there to be like this, like happily ever after. And that is a lot of Western changes that are being made to make it into what Western audiences would want it to be. Instead of like looking at it, for what it is and from the time period that it is from and what it represents. I agree. And I think there is something to appreciating the story for what it is and not trying to change that. Like, like not trying to make Sharia redeemable, but being like, there is a happy ending for the star of the story. The protagonist, which is Shahrazad, is that she is successful in her plan of saving women from being murdered. Yeah. And it's like, I don't think we need him to be redeemed, like focusing so much more on him. And it's like, and maybe even at the end, like, cause I think even in this, I think almost going a little more the other way where it's like, yes, he has made a decision to not kill women anymore, but, and it kind of like curves off into this, like, and you know, they live these great lives and may we all live great lives who are hearing these tales. Like, you know, it may just be this thing where he's like, I don't know, like we can have be still be kind of like detached, like at the end of the I'm imagining the movie version of this at the end of the movie version of this, like she's like she convinces him not to kill her. And he's like, "Okay, you're right. That is bad. I will not kill you. I'm not going to kill anyone. We don't have to worry about this. And he walks out of the room. And then you have that final moment between Scheherazade and like Dunyazad. And maybe even like the father where they come in and like they get their moment where they're like celebrating together. And like, that is the thing, not the, not the relationship with her and and Shari are because that's not the thing. Like it's, it's her father and her is a really strong relationship, her and her sister. And like the thing that she is doing for the people or like maybe, maybe even like some sort of thing where the people hear the news of, Oh, like 
he's not going to have her killed. Like this is not going to happen anymore. And the people yeah. being able to be like, oh, thank goodness. Like, sh- like Sherazad, that's amazing that she was able to do this, you know, like celebrating yeah. that aspect of it. Yeah. For me, it's like that, like kind of like iconic wedding couple or whatever, like married couple, married royal couple on a balcony in front of like all of this like group of people and he like makes the announcement that you know there's not going to be any more like bride murders anymore and he as he like leaves the balcony the people are like cheering and it's like end shot with yeah like Shahrazad, Dunyazad, and like her dad, and like the kingdom cheering like for, for her. Yeah, that's yeah, for, I love like that. The, they did it instead of because it is. It's this isn't his triumph. Like it, it's yeah. not King Shahryar's triumph. Like it kind of goes to like kind of a modern sensibility of of the um like we don't cheer for men for doing the minimum. Yeah, and like not murdering your wife and like raping women like that's below that's the below minimum, the minimum. <laughs> yeah. yeah like there's no there's no cheering for that like for being like yay he stopped murdering and raping women like no no we're not we're not clapping for that that's not that not good for you we're not clapping for yeah. you like and so yeah like it, it is interesting that it is um it's so often seen as like a love story but it's it's not no not at all and it's also interesting as a story, especially for this time period, because very much the woman is the hero completely. Yeah. And there are so many tales that, you know, have survived through antiquity that that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Those The stories of women triumphing is usually seen as like, oh, that's 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 a woman's story. That's a small interest story, even though women make up half of the <laughs> more population. Yeah. It's seen more of like, oh, that's a special interest story. But then the stories that are written down by learned men and like repeated are stories where it is mostly like male dominated, male focused. And so like this story, it's one of those few from the time period that it's from where it is 100% like this woman absolutely triumphs she is the heroine she does all of the hard things and gets it done yep yep so they say that anyone who reaches the end of the tales of the thousand and one nights is doomed to die (gasps) (laughs) but i am here to tell you that we're all doomed to die oh you switched it up (laughs) on us So if this journey into the Thousand One Nights has taught us anything, it is that we are all going to be visited by the destroyer of delights (laughs) and the parter of friends when we are fated to leave this existence. (laughs) So we've talked a lot in the past year about the audience of these tales being King Shariar, but there is another layer to this framed narrative that often gets overlooked. And that is this audience. The audience who is looking down into this story at King Shariar and Shahrazad, wondering how this story is going to turn out, is us. We are the ultimate frame story <gasps> to these tales. Oh my gosh. <laughs> the main storyteller of all of this has not been Shahrazad. It has been the storyteller that you listen to these tales 
from. Oh, man. So for me, I was reading these tales by multiple different storytellers through different translations and reading their commentaries on their own works and like their own translations. And for our audience, you have been stuck with the fairy tales. <laughs> I was going to say, oh, man. All year. <laughs> There's much better sources that you could have gone to, but we're very grateful that you came to us. Thank you. <laughs> so everybody who has listened to these stories, they have listened to our selection of tales from this vast collection, and they have listened to our side comments and our side commentary. <laughs> So the audience that exists outside of this frame narrative of King Shariar and Shahrazad is the most important one of all because they have ultimately been the ones who have decided whether this collection of tales would live or die. When all the tales are told and the collection lies in front of people, having exhausted its contents like Shahrazad, the audience gets to decide the fate of the tales. Is it worth keeping? Is it worth telling? Is it worth holding on to? For hundreds, if not thousands or more years, audiences have said yes to these stories. The audience holds up these stories that are very fragile, and they say, yes, this is worth keeping. This is worth holding on to. This is worth passing on. The tagline of this whole year has been to tell why these stories captivated people and why they still captivate us now. And in some respects, those answers are personal to each person. Some people might be captivated by the magic in the tales that's so foreign, but also feels so familiar. And for others, it might be that the stories still hold truths and teach lessons that are still valuable today. I mean, I've been shocked by how relevant oh, yeah. these tales have been to me and to things that have been happening in the world. Like, so often as I've been reading, I have been like, this is like it was written today. Yeah. So much of this, sure. like the, the deep lessons in it are so relevant. In Stranger Magic, Marina Warner says... The stories in the nights captured the interest of 18th century readers as soon as they appeared because their motifs had, and still have, an uncanny applicability to modern experience. So Jeff and I have not exhausted at all the things <laughs> that there are to find Inside the Thousand and One Nights, and also the things that are said about the Thousand and One Nights. So as much as I have joked about quoting The Arabian Nights, A Companion by Robert <laughs> Irwin, there is so much in there that hasn't been touched on by our podcast. I really want to encourage anyone who's enjoyed this series to get a copy of that book of Stranger Magic by Marina Warner, and also a book that I did not quote from too often, but it really helped to shape my understanding of the religious culture of the tales. It's called Islam, Arabs, and the Intelligent World of the Jinn by Amira Elzine. There is so much just incredible work out there. And if you've loved this series, there is enough material to last you a lifetime looking at The Thousand One Nights. And I want to end this whole series with a quote 
that comes from Maria Tatar's brand new book, (laughs) The Heroine with a Thousand Faces. Shahrazad will always remain a mystery, a paradox productive in its power to generate an infinite regress of conversation sites. Each time we read The Thousand and One Nights, we discover new facets of her identity, features that challenge us to rethink how we once viewed her. Thank you for listening to The Fairy Tellers. If you enjoy what we're doing, please leave us a review or share us with your friends. Also consider supporting us on Patreon for access to exclusive bonus content, including outtakes and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash thefairytellers. Special thanks to Andrew Foray for our music and to Clarice Inch for our artwork. And of course, a big thank you to all our patrons. Without all of you, this show wouldn't be possible. Fairy tales are always more interesting when something is added to them. Each new telling recharges the narrative, making it crackle and hiss with cultural energy. Maria Tatar. I thought that was good, Jeff. I think we did that. We did so good. We did. I'm so proud of we us for how well we handled that. Yeah. But I was like, I was like, how are we going to like tonally shift this down into what I want it to be? But no, we told, we got there. Jeff. Yeah, yeah. We did it. We're ballers. We are. We know what we're doing. <laughs> we have like two years of experience. Cue the music. Cue the tears. Bam. It's over. <laughs> nice. We did it, Jeff.